verses 25 to 37. And perhaps you've missed it, but at the very end of the passage that we've just read, where the lawyer, a religious lawyer, by the way, is seeking to trap Jesus, Jesus responds to him with a parable that demands, that requires that the the lawyer puts words on his lips that he does not want to say. And that might be the very reason that he does not say those words that he is supposed to say. Now, follow with me, you'll see what he says. Jesus asks a question after he asks, who then is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story after which Jesus asks in uh, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said... The one who showed him mercy. With a bit of drama to go with it. The one who showed him mercy. The words he refuses to say, you know what those words are? (laughs) The Samaritan. Those are the words that he refuses to say. He'd rather say, the one who showed him mercy. Because you see, uh, this, this, this man that sought to trap Jesus was a Jew... And their relatives, the Samaritans, the old northern tribe of Israel, they are their enemies. Not enemies in the same way that the Romans were their enemies, but they were their enemies in the way that relatives can often get into a squabble with one another. And the last thing you want is when one of those relatives would be the ones to show mercy to you. I don't want your pity. I I don't want to just... Leave me alone. And that's essentially what's happening in his heart as Jesus tells the story. He has to say the person who is the hero of Jesus' parable is from the ethnic tribe, the ethnic group that he despises. And that is what Jesus intends to do with us tonight as well. You have received grace and mercy from a source that by nature you despise. Now, in the Heidelberg Catechism, in question five, question four and five really is the question, how do you know your misery? Uh, And then the Catechism answers by the law of God. And then the question is, but what is the law of God? And then Matthew 22 is summarized. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the Catechism asks, but are you able to keep it? And then it answers, or rather, can you live up to all this perfectly? And the answer is no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. To hate God and my neighbor. And this hatred that is at the heart of every human being is what Jesus comes to expose in this passage. He comes to expose in our own hearts tonight. So in order to help us, let us hold on to three three markers as we go through this passage. The first is the story itself. We'll walk through the story itself now. And then 
we'll move to apply it personally to individuals, to ourselves as individuals. And then thirdly, we'll apply it to the church and, um, and see what Jesus teaches us about himself and the source of compassion instead of hatred. So, let us walk through the passage firstly and understand the story as it's written. It's clear in verse 25, this man is a lawyer, is a religious lawyer. He, he asks Jesus a question. It's not the first time this question has been asked of Jesus, won't be the last. But what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And perhaps you remember when Jesus spoke to the rich young ruler, he had the same question. And Jesus again drew attention to the law. And he quoted the law famously, and he missed something out, which I always found amusing, that Jesus doesn't then correct him when he misses something out. But he quotes the law, and uh, essentially Jesus demands of him that he just goes and does that. And the disciples are perplexed, because they realize they can't do this. They can't fulfill the requirements of the law. But, but Jesus, in this instance, when he answers the question, what do you need to do in order to inherit life? The man summarizes the law. And Jesus does what he does essentially with the rich young ruler. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now I imagine when Jesus was telling the story, he is, by the way, on his way towards Jericho. If you were reading Luke at this point, you'll see that he is traveling towards Jericho. He will soon enter the city of Jericho. And after entering the city of Jericho, he will leave on his way towards Jerusalem. This is a little detail I think we need to put in our back pocket as we want to make sense of this passage. Jesus' story, and you can imagine that the religious lawyer, after hearing Jesus' answer, he does, I suspect, I would have done as well, and I would have loitered. I would have stood with my hands in my pockets, and I would have waited for another opportunity to to just ask a follow-up question, because it begs a follow-up question, doesn't it? Jesus points out the obvious, that in order to inherit eternal life, well, fulfill the law. That is what you are required to do. But but the follow-up question is the Heidelberg Catechism question. But I am unable to do it. That is the question. How do I do this if this is required of me? Perhaps that would have been a more honest question to ask. Instead, the lawyer does what I think we do as we litigate in our own hearts. We look for ways to escape this demand in our lives. The Lord requires perfect obedience. Instead of giving perfect obedience, look for loopholes. We look for little ways out from underneath the weight of this expectation. And the loophole that the lawyer finds in this particular passage is... The definition of the word neighbor. Jesus is, of course, the Lord of life and wise beyond our imagining. And he sees right through this man's defense strategy. And so he would allow him to carry on with this line of questioning. But he will slowly modify his line of questioning to reveal something that is in his heart that unless he brings this, He will never be able to fulfill the law of God. And this is what he has to reveal to this man, is you cannot fulfill the law of God, the the demand for love, love towards God and towards your neighbor, if you do not first say, if you do not first admit that I do not know how to love. 
I do not know how to show compassion. You can't, you can't rise before you fall. And that is what Jesus demands of this man. He demands of him to fall down and ask the honest and truthful question and say, but, but Jesus, I, I hear you, but I cannot do it. Please help me to do this. But instead he, he defends and he deflects uh, and he bends and he warps and he woos in order to get out from underneath the pressure of this demand. So Jesus allows him to carry on. Verse 29 reveals to us that there was another motivation at work in his heart. It wasn't just to get out from underneath the weight of the law of love, but it was that he desired to justify himself. And we know from earlier he was trying to test Jesus. He was trying to trap Jesus. He wanted to justify himself. And that's why he came up with this question, who is my neighbor? That was his strategy. So Jesus tells the parable, and let's look at the detail of the parable now. He tells tells us of a man that goes on a journey who then is robbed. Two people walk past him. One shows mercy, cares for him, and promises to return to make sure he gets safely home. That's in summary what Jesus says, but here's the interesting bit of all of this. Why all superfluous details? Why is this man, why is Jesus telling us that this man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho? Why is he telling us that they left this man half dead? Why is he telling us that the people that walked past were a priest and a Levite? Why is he telling us that it is a Samaritan that came to help him? Why is it that he tells us that he didn't merely help him, but he had compassion on him, he cared for him, he cared for him particularly by washing his wounds with oil and with wine? Why is it that he put him on a donkey or on an animal and he took him to an inn? Why do we have this detail about paying the innkeeper two denarii very specifically? Why is it that he makes the promise that I will repay you when I come back, but you need to take care of him? Why all of these details? Well, Jesus was getting at something in the heart of this Jewish man that only all of these references could bring up. Because it was designed to cause this ruler and those Jews around him to to lean back on their understanding. Jesus is giving them all kinds of details to go back to a portion of scripture, to go and go and read, to, to, to go and go and look again. At, at whatever comes to mind that has all of those elements roughly in it, and it's 2 Chronicles 28 where this happens. 2 Chronicles 28. And so as we try and make sense of the story, we have to realize that it fits into its wider context of the Bible, and it is a parable that is told to a, to a, a Jewish man from Judah, the southern tribe, And it includes a Samaritan from the northern tribe. And they have some history that we need to understand. So let's briefly look at that history. If you have your Bibles, you can you can turn to 2 Chronicles 28. You can follow with me. I'll briefly read the relevant passage. Um, I don't know what the page number is in your your Bibles. 
I'm not going to look it up now, but you can find it. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out. This is verse 8 or 9. Behold, he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And so, just to set the scene a little bit, this is Judah that's been subjugated by the Samaritans. Uh, the army has now brought in the captives to Samaria, uh, and they are prisoners of war. This battle is uh, remarkably violent, uh, and uh, they are being held accountable for their rage. And now, a, now a prophet stands up in the midst of the Samaritans to say, "Look, have compassion on these Jews." Verse 10, and now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Certain chiefs, also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, and Brachiah, the son of Meshillamoth, Jezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to your present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great, and there's fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. So this is now in Samaria. And the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives, and with the spoil... They clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. And then they returned to Samaria. You see, when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan... He is recalling this history that the Samaritans and the Jews have. He is recalling this and he is forcing the, the, the religious lawyer as he stands there to, to admit and to confess that the hero of Jesus' story, the man who is the neighbor who has compassion, is a Samaritan. Those despised people that we look down on as Jews. We look down on them for their false worship. We look down on them on their false beliefs. Nothing good can come from them. And so the Jewish man uh, labels the entire Samaritan people with this brush. Not realizing what Jesus came to do. And that is to break down the wall of hostility that does not just exist between Jews and Gentiles. Between Jews and Jews. Between man and man. Between mankind. That is what Jesus came to do. Jesus... He's saying to this man, if you understood anything about what, if you understood anything of what I am about, you would have asked me and I would have given you rebirth so that you too can fulfill the law and have compassion. But instead he squirms and he avoids and he deflects and he resists this audience with the Lord of the Most High who can give him everything that he has, his heart desires. Okay, so, so far the story 
of the parable and the Jewish religious leader. Now to us, before we get to the church. You see, the demands that are made on us through this passage is quite personal. It's quite personal and it's a feeling that we all uh, encounter quite often as we go about our lives and encounter people with needs around us. And we can hear the, the words ringing in our ears that we are to have compassion on those with need around us. And we feel aggrieved and we feel guilty and we feel ashamed for the times that we've shut up our hearts as we walk past a situation that needs our compassion where we've shut up our wallets, where we walked past the situation that needed money. Uh, and we, we walk around feeling the, the burden of guilt because the question, who is my neighbor, surely the answer to that is everyone is. That is part of what Jesus is teaching here. Now I've discovered in my own heart that there is, there is a way that I have found, a crafty way that I have found to avoid the demands of loving my neighbor. And it is in this phrase, my neighbor is everyone, because surely what Jesus is teaching is this Samaritan loved the Jew. And though if that is the case, then you are to break over some boundaries in order to love people from these backgrounds. But the trouble is, the trouble is, we love mankind, perhaps. We might love humanity and we might support all kinds of endeavors around the world in order to help and relieve the lot of people groups all over the world that are persecuted or that are struggling or that are having a hard time. That doesn't seem to me to be the problem. To believe that everyone's my neighbor and that I should care and provide for them have become to my heart a place to hide from the pressure of loving not just mankind in general, but people in particular, particularly those that come upon my path. And so perhaps that is where the weight of this passage needs to land for us tonight, is to say there would be no resistance against believing that everyone's our neighbor and we should help everyone. But, but perhaps where the real pressure comes is when I am to love my immediate neighbor, in our case the the ones that like to smoke flowery fumes next door to us and play loud music. I'm, I'm quick to, to like a post by anyone about the suffering of a far-off people group. And I, my heart is drawn to compassion for, for people's suffering, mankind's suffering in general, as I read of tragedies happening wherever in the world. But what I find particularly difficult to do is to love my actual neighbor. Is to love those particular people that is on my path. My, uh, my sister-in-law, Mariette, she lives in Potchefstroom and she, she is an absolute example of this. Stefani and I often refer to her. She has taken it upon herself to just love locally. To love and pour herself out. She doesn't read the news. She doesn't care about the massive things that's happening, the geopolitical movements that's taking place in the world. Those things that take so much of our emotional energy as we invest ourselves in reading an entire article or opinion piece about it and then feeling the outrage at this lot that these poor distant people are suffering. She's just decided to avoid those. And so when I walk out of my door in South Africa, I am faced with poverty all around me. 
And where I move, where I walk, where my feet goes, that is where I will bring the love and the light of Jesus Christ with me. I will bring his compassion as I go on the way. Now the challenge, of course, for us as Londoners is this, that the needs are invisible. Of course, there are the needs of those that stand at tube stations and those that wait for money perhaps at a, at a cash machine or in front of a grocery store. Please don't close your heart to them as well. But there is a greater need, and it's all around you, and it is the need of our people that believe that they love. But they've not learned the first lesson that Jesus is teaching this man, that the first step in order to love is to know that you cannot love. The thing your heart desires is love and approval and affection is something that you cannot give to the people around you. The greatest needs of your friends and your housemates and your fellow students and colleagues and workers and and whoever else is that they believe that they are loving and kind people where they do not know the first thing about love and that is that I cannot love. That they are not forced to come to the one who loved and say, you teach me. You rebirth me. You remake me in order to love. And so that really is the personal application to all of us. If that is you, if you're not a believer, if you do not know that you cannot love, come tonight, come to the Lord Jesus. Say, I find in my heart this strange rule that I cannot love the people that's closest to me. I cannot. I can love big campaigns. I can put tattoos on my body that says God is love. And I can put it on my status feed. I can do all kinds of things with that beautiful phrase, God is love. But but if I am to love the person right next to me, I do not have it in me. Please remake me. Please rebirth me. and Please equip me with your spirit to love like your son loved. Love like you love. You love the unkind or the evil and the ungrateful. Those are the words in Luke 6.35, by the way. God says, it's no point if you love those that will love you in return. That's, that's the easy bit. No, love like your father loves. And he loves the evil and the ungrateful. That, by the way, is us. And he loved us by the cost of his own son. So, we dealt with the Samaritan and his story. We've dealt with us personally. I'm sure there's many more applications and questions that could have come up. Now, thirdly, let's deal with the church. You see, the point of... Jesus' ministry was not to come and teach individuals in the first instance to love and to heal. Of course, that is what he also did. But his, his mission was far greater. He came to bring in the kingdom of God. And this kingdom was not a kingdom of the Jews. It is not the kingdom of Judah. It is not another exclusionary circle of of, of, of ethnically uh, homogenous people that will stand in their circle throwing rocks at those on the outside. Jesus' kingdom was not like the world's kingdom and isn't like the world's kingdom. So what Jesus does through the story, he, he gives us an introduction to what he accomplished on the cross. And the apostle Paul would write about Jesus who came to break down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. 
But in this passage, Jesus comes slightly closer to home, and he speaks about the wall of hostility that Jesus came to break down between Judah and Israel, between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And he's putting his finger on this very divide. And he says, the ministry that I am doing is far greater than giving individuals compassion for one another. I'm building a new kingdom where these two opposite poles would come together in the reconciliation that I affected for them and on their behalf. Now, if you wonder about that in Acts 9, you can read about it. It's Luke. Luke writes Luke's gospel and Acts. And in Acts 9 or Acts 8, we, we read about Philip that goes to Samaria. And this is what happens as Philip arrives in Samaria. Now, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. You see, Samaritans becoming part of God's kingdom. Those closest, most annoying neighbors to to the Jews are included into the church of Jesus Christ. And this becomes the picture to the world as they look on this church. You say, but hang on, not only do we see Jews and Gentiles in this, we see Jews and, and their, their nemesis, their I don't quite want to use the word enemies, but relatives at war, perhaps a better word. They're relatives at war. They're at peace with one another. This kingdom that Jesus came is a real, actual peace that is brought between close neighbors. This kingdom is something from another world, in other words. That is what Jesus comes to teach through this parable. How is Jesus building his kingdom? And with that, I close. Builds his kingdom through his own blood and through his own oil. Why do I say that? You see, in this parable, we have the good Samaritan that arrives most probably, and I've got no textual evidence of that, from Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. The man is on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is in the Jordan Valley. It's down below. It's a city of palm trees. It's beautiful. He's going from Jerusalem, the the, the, the Jewish center. He's going down, and most likely this Samaritan is coming up from Jericho towards Jerusalem on his way to Samaria that's further north. And this, incidentally, is the very same direction that Jesus is traveling at this moment. And so when this good Samaritan encounters the, 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 the beaten up Jew by the side of the road, he does not do what the Levite and the priest does. The Levite and the priest says, look, we are religiously, ritually pure. Touching a man that looks like he's dead. He might be dead. Who knows he's dead? And if I touch this dead man, I will be excluded from temple worship, which is my means of justification for however long. I'll just pass down the other side. But this man comes and he stops. Because he knows that Hosea 6 verse 6 would say, God does not require sacrifices but mercy. 
And this is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching in the Gospels as well. He's saying in the Gospels that when the Pharisees accuse him of eating with tax collectors sinners, he says, I did not come from, for, the, for the well, but for the sick. Because God, my Father, requires mercy, compassion, not sacrifice, quoting Isaiah 6. And so the Good Samaritan embodies Jesus that does not use the law to hide from love, but goes and fulfills the law of love as he stops, as he touches the man that is seemingly dead. And then what is it that he does? Now, I know I stretch. I'm stretching the parable here for a moment, but allow me just as one indulgence. Well, two of them exactly. The wine. What is the wine about? He cleans this man's wounds in wine. It's not a singular wound. He did not hit his finger with a, with a hammer. His whole body is beaten up. You can imagine this poor man just lying on the side of the road. And, and this Samaritan takes out from his bag wine and he pours this out on each of these wounds, washing the dirt and washing the infection and the bacteria away with this lightly alcoholic mixture. And he cleans the wounds. He washes him in his blood. That's my indulgence. Could this be a sign of Christ washing us, not just from our wounds, but from death itself with his own blood? And so Christ, as he tells the story, would himself pour out his lifeblood in order to wash our sin away. And he doesn't stop there. Of course, he seals the wounds with the oil. I've not tried this as a remedy for first aid in our house just yet. But I can imagine that as these wounds are washed and this dusty environment that we're in, to take the oil and to cover these wounds with it, keep other things from, from getting in there. And then we see at Pentecost that Christ pours out his spirit, anoints his church with his spirit as they are empowered, poured out on them, empowered, to be a force of healing and reconciliation and building God's kingdom in this broken world that we're in. You see, so the whole answer of this passage is, Jesus is the good Samaritan, and that's where the problem lies in Jesus at that time and at our time today. Because if the Jew despised the Samaritan who was the hero of the story, we despise our very conviction that God is the hero of our story. By nature, we hate God and our neighbor. And the Romans and the Greeks and all at the time of Jesus looked at this man from Nazareth who was nothing to look at, was despised, says Isaiah 53. And God used him to become the wisdom and the power of God, the weak things of the world, in order to shame the wise and the strong. Do you realize that in your heart by nature, You want to resist the hero of the story that is Jesus, that you are so desperate that you need someone to come and wash your wounds, in fact, wash your deadness away to give you life through his own lifeblood. Are you so, are you so proud? Are you perhaps so arrogant that you refuse to receive this gift that in order to live a life under God's law, you don't only need his forgiveness, you also need his anointing, you need his Holy Spirit, your every good work for him. God is calling us. He's calling us to look at his son 
And to say, if I discover my own heart and unwillingness to love, I can only come to one, and that is to him. The one who had compassion on me, pouring out his lifeblood and anointing me with his spirit, so that I too would become good, compassionate, and merciful in the world that he has created. Let us pray and ask that God will indeed fix our eyes on his Savior. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank and praise you that you loved us this much, that you gave to us your only begotten Son. You gave him. And Lord Jesus, at the Lord's Supper, you took the bread, and after you blessed it, you gave thanks, and you gave it to the disciples after breaking it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is compassion. He said, you gave to us your son, you took on human flesh, and you, Lord Jesus, then, then gave yourself fully and completely as you did in the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. Let us by faith eat and drink you. Let us not just find tonight that our ears have been tickled. Let us just not find tonight that we have found uh, uh, another Old Testament reference to a New Testament parable that we found insightful. Let us not just dwell on the intricacy or, or, or in- interesting things of this passage, but, but let us see God who took on human flesh, who gave himself intimately and fully and, and vulnerably in order to deal with our sin. Not merely to bind up our wounds, but to, but to give us new life. We pray for the church, your church around the world. And it's hard not to see that the innkeeper is entrusted with the act of caring for those that the good, for that, that man who the good Samaritan have encountered on the road. And, and as your church, we are often entrusted with broken people. That requires compassion and mercy and kindness. Requiring love even when they are ungrateful or evil. And so we ask that you will empower us as your church with your spirit in order to care. In order to continue to show your compassion to those that you have gathered and brought in. And we hear it ringing in our ears that you will come back and you will pay whatever we've, we, we've spent. But that is not the reason we ask that we will do this wholeheartedly. No, we ask that we will love the broken and the poor that come across our path. We ask that we will love them with your love and for your name's sake. That our love would be our act of worship, our act of thanksgiving to you that has given us everything. And so we ask that our love would be liberal, would be generous, would be kind, would be intimate, would be caring, and would emulate you in all that you've done for us. This, Father, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.